You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark, Mark chapter 15. Lord willing, this morning we'll look at verses 33 through 41 as we continue our series following Jesus on his course to the cross um, preceding uh, Easter Sunday. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, please uh, pull out the insert provided for you in your bulletin. And follow along with us. We want to make sure uh, that we are preaching God's word to, to you. So make sure uh, you're following along. If you are watching online, uh, you can also uh, go to the Version Bible app. That's Y-O-U uh, version. After you download it, go to the More tab, tap Events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, click on today's sermon title, and the notes, quotes, and references should download right there on your phone. And you can uh, research them and save them. All right. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. We're in part three of our King Jesus series. And this third part I've entitled simply Victory. Victory. Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Napoleon... These men are some of the men that would have been more in line with Jewish messianic expectations. Who they thought their Christ, their hero would be than Jesus ever was. How could the people of Jesus' day miss Jesus? Could they really not see it? And I think if you and I were there today, we would equally miss it as well could they not see how Jesus was fulfilling prophecies of the Old Testament and the answer is yes and no the utter abandonment and profound suffering that's recorded for instance in Isaiah 53 it's called the suffering servant passage it was understood to have applied to corporate Israel the entire nation of Israel coming out of Babylonian exile. So they weren't looking for a particular man who would embody the suffering servant. They saw that one man from that passage to be the nation of Israel coming out of exile. Another famous passage is Psalm 22. It's the Psalm of the righteous sufferer, and you'll see it alluded to here today's text, in today's text. And actually some uh, rabbis understood it as a prophecy about Queen Esther. Really interesting. But they did not think of it concerning Jesus. And why? It was inconceivable for the Messiah, the Jewish hero, to suffer, especially a fate like Roman crucifixion. The Jewish Messiah, the Christ, 
knows only victory. I want you to think about this because this will become important later. If you remember this, this helps you really understand sentiments about the Messiah, the Christ, during Jesus' day. Remember when, who would become the Apostle Peter, when he's asked, well, who do you say I am? Remember when Jesus asked, identify me, tell me who I am. And what does Peter say to Jesus? You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So you're the Christ. You're who the Old Testament points to as our great deliverer. And think along the lines of Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Napoleon. And then think about what Jesus says next to Peter. He begins to explain to him how he'll go into Jerusalem, be crucified, and three days he'll be raised. Do you understand how like that doesn't compute? The Christ crucified? And in fact, that's when Peter gets up on his high horse and goes, it's never going to be that way, right? And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're standing in the way. And technically, Peter was standing in the way of our redemption. But he didn't know that. He was thinking much more geopolitical than that. I mean, think about it. You say, why does Jesus make this great warrior king? I mean, think about one man who can take just a handful of of fish and loaves and feed an army of 5,000 people. Think about a man who, when his soldiers are hurt in battle, he can heal them in an instant. If you're talking about the potential for the greatest general, commander, and king of all time, Jesus is it. And so they thought of Jesus in these terms. Never thinking, I mean, you see the irony? That the Christ would be crucified for treason by their Roman oppressors. It is utter foolishness. And what we'll see is the power of the gospel. It's amazing. A crucified person so far from being chosen, anointed, and sent by God was understood to be cursed by God. The exact opposite of blessing. A suffering son of God was seen by Jews as a contradiction in terms, by Greek as foolishness. To proclaim the crucified Jesus as God's son, the universal Lord, and the judge of the world was sheer folly. It's foolishness, stupidity. The extreme dishonor of his death by crucifixion counted against any such claims. Who can believe in this crucified hero? And the question I want us to explore, and it's what the church has been proclaiming for two, centuries, two millennia, is what was Jesus' victory? What was his great triumph? What war did he win that makes him the most known man in history? And we're going to read it today. We're going to read about Jesus' victory. And it's the weirdest victory story you've ever read. Let's read Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. It says, When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. 
Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick and offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then, then, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him, I love this, face to face, looking at him at the cross, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. They supported Jesus. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. And you just read Jesus' most glorious hour in victory. Sounds crazy. There are three mysteries in this passage, and it gives us a sneak peek into understanding Jesus' most victorious moment. Number one, write this down. Darkness covers the land. Darkness covers the land. Darkness covered the land for three hours, from noon till three o'clock. Now think about this. Jesus had hung on the cross in daylight. And then at the sixth hour, or high noon, it depends on your, how you reckon the time back then, at high noon, when the sun should be at its brightest and fullest, darkness engulf the entire land of Israel. From the river to the sea, every city, town, hamlet, every vale, every hill, people, think about this, crept about in their houses thinking, this has got to be the end of the world. I mean, think for three, we're talking about an eclipse for maybe ten minutes. We're talking about three hours, people are walking around in, quote, broad daylight, and it's pitch black outside. Interesting. The darkness, many consider to be a cosmic sign of God's judgment on human sin, which was then placed on Jesus. That we're seeing a sign in the heavenlies that God has, is seated on his throne, Judging the sin of the world that has been imputed, credited, or is on the shoulders of Jesus. He is bearing our sin on his body. Darkness blanketed. Think about this. Think about some of the times where Israel had seen darkness cover a land. Darkness had blanketed Egypt when it came under God's judgment. This is not new to the history of Israel. In Amos Um, You need to write this down. Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. There is a prophecy about the sun going down at noon as a manifestation of God's judgment. And it said that people, it says the idea of people would mourn and grieve like losing their one and only son. Really interesting. The darkness here visualizes what Jesus would express that the righteous one, had come under God's judgment. You see how Jesus cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the book of Mark, Mark's narrative is replete with either uh, cross-references or allusions to the Old Testament, and in particular to what they call the righteous sufferer Psalms. Psalm 22 is a righteous sufferer psalm. And it actually begins in Psalm Psalm 22, verse 1, 
is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a couple of things that are interesting about this psalm. Is Some scholars think that that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was identifying himself with the righteous sufferer of the Old Testament. And in fact, went on to quote all of Psalm 22 while he was on the cross. Pretty interesting. Another scholar says this, if you see how Mark does the narrative, is some thinks he was going through it backwards. That he starts at the bottom of the psalm and works his way up as the pinnacle being, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The point that I want you to remember, and just because we're going to use this later in this sermon, is that the psalm, 22, of the righteous sufferer must have been on Jesus' mind. Must have been on Jesus' mind. Then Jesus, when he makes this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he says the word God, Eloi, some thought he had said Elijah instead of Eloi. Now, why was that important? Why did they think Elijah in that instance? Elijah, as we know in 2 Kings chapter 2, had been taken bodily into heaven without ever dying. Remember Elijah in the chariot of fire? He was caught up into heaven. And so popular Judaism believed that if a person was really righteous and they had been abandoned and they were actually cursed, right, by people around him, but he was really righteous before the eyes of God, Elijah would swoop down and rescue them. And so they thought, oh, he's, he's riffing on our popular traditions that he's the righteous sufferer and he's calling for Elijah. Come get me, Elijah. Come get me. God would send Elijah to spare Jesus from further suffering and death. And in fact, some people think when you read the passage that after he had said Elijah, notice what they said, they gave him something to drink. And they make the statement, let's see if Elijah will come get him. The whole idea was we're going to offer you something to drink so that we can prolong your suffering to see if Elijah will really come. We're going to keep you barely alive. So they're waiting to see Jesus' vindication. And yet at the same time, what they're unaware of is by offering him the drink and him partaking it, he is also fulfilling the prophecy about Psalm 69, 21. It's unfolding right before their very eyes. They're playing into it. Why? Because this is the king of the Jews being crucified by the Romans. He's not the Messiah. He's a liar, a blasphemer, an insurrectionist. And then we find out why Jesus, this is my favorite part of this passage, why Jesus, you've seen him earlier, he refused the drink of the wine laced with myrrh. Remember, it was essentially a narcotic. It would numb some of the pain. He said, no, I don't want that. Here he's offered this cheap wine and Jesus sips on it. Why would he do that? We see that they offered it because they're trying to see if Elijah would come. Jesus takes a sip, and then after that, we see that Jesus gives a long shout. And here's what we understand. This was Jesus' victory shout. Most people understand it to be in correspondence with John's gospel, and John gives us the Greek word tetelestai. It's finished! I love the fault of my Jesus hanging on the cross. They're mocking him, ridiculing him. They offer him something to drink to spite him. And he's like, I'll take that drink because I have to clear my throat for my victory shout. Isn't that good? 
Could you, this, is, this is something that Ken, I want you to think about when he says it's finished. I don't know if we've ever had a drama this way. This is like Braveheart's freedom type kind of thing. It's finished! And then he gives up his life. Another really interesting note, and I believe this more than ever, the crucifixion was meant to be a long, drawn-out suffering that went on for days, and then you died. Jesus, in all, had been on the cross a little over six hours. And there was this violent death there at the end. And scholars always argue, is it, you know, did he suffocate? Doesn't seem that way. Especially with that last crop. Some posit, well, he must have had a, a severe heart attack. And I think Augustine's right. Listen to what Augustine said. It says, he departed by his own power, for he had not come by necessity. I'll explain that. And so some marveled more at his power of dying than at his power of performing miracles. Remember, we make these statements. This is what Augustine's saying. You and I are contingent beings. That's a philosophical term to say. The universe can go on without our existence. We're dependent upon God, right? God gives us life, and what else can God do? He can take it. Well, what happens when you're the God-man? Who takes your life? You do. He actually in that moment says, it's done. He made the decision because he is a necessary being. He doesn't have to die. Isn't that interesting? He dies, makes the choice. It's finished and he leaves. The question is, what's finished? That's the question. Why the victory shout? From the outside looking in, think about, just put your, your feet in the first century sandals, stand on Golgotha, look at what happened, and you're going, what? This is the victory story? This is what Christians are excited about? And this is where Mark gets really good, okay? There was far more profound spiritual agony that Jesus endured on the cross than you and I can ever plumb. Thanks to the endurance of Jesus on the cross, no created being, that's you and I, need ever to experience what it really is like for God to abandon us. No explanation is adequate other than the traditional view that in that dark hour, God's wrath fell upon Jesus. Because wrath is no abstract principle, but a personal manifestation. This means that Jesus' unclouded communion with the Father. You and I don't know what this means. We don't. Remember in John chapter 1 it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, face to face with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, okay, the second person of the Trinity, had enjoyed relationship with God the Father from eternity past. And when I say to its highest infinite extent, to be in God and God be in you. I mean, we have a hard time explaining what it really means for the relationship to happen. And yet here in this moment, this second person of the Trinity becomes the object of God's wrath. He's going to pour out his anger on humanity's injustice on this one person who had never known, never known what it's like to look up into the heavens and go, where's God? We can't fathom what was going on internally and in the heavenlies, the invisible spiritual realm that was occurring. 
that day. When God poured his wrath out on Jesus. If there was a barrier between the father and the son at that moment, that barrier could be named sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. And that is the heart of the cross. That is Jesus' victory. The mystery which no painting, no sculpture, the distorted face can never fail to realize Jesus' true nature for the punishment of sin, separation from God, and the depth of the agony that Jesus bore. This was the ultimate horror to be made sin. The Lord Jesus was a brave man. He could have suffered the pain of crucifixion without a word. Thousands of people had suffered crucifixion by the Romans. It was commonplace in those days. But think about this. To be made sin, to be abandoned by God, that was what Jesus dreaded. And I want you to think about this. This shows you how okay with sin you and I've become. Becoming sin and sinning is not a horror for us, is it? We would just say, and we do this, hey, we say it like this, nobody's perfect, right? No big deal, we all have done it. What happens to the sinless man for the first time doesn't just taste, but drinks up all the sins of the world. We can't fathom the horror, the sheer panic, the anxiety that washes over that man. And then God goes, and I'm going to take care of it all at one time on this man once and for all. And Jesus endured it. Write this down. This is the victory. And this is, y'all, this is why Jesus is the greatest conqueror to ever live. Because if you think, if you really, for a moment, think about what I'm about to tell you, this is the most terrifying statement. And then the greatest news you could ever hear is this, is that God took, I mean, Jesus took God's judgment for us. Jesus took God's judgment for us. It shows you the severity of sin that we, that there is a God who punishes sin. He is a just God. And yet at the same time, it says there is a God who is so unbelievably loving that he offered his son in our place. And that, that might take a while to come to grips with that. And you would ultimately see why we worship Jesus as God is who else could deliver us from God's wrath? It's the greatest victory you can ever experience for yourself. And his victory is for you. It's for you. Luther put it this way, For we are sinners and thieves, and therefore we are worthy of death and eternal damnation. But Christ took all our sins upon himself, and for them he died on the cross. Jesus was forsaken so that you might never be forsaken. In the darkness, our sins were poured out on Jesus, so he became sin for us. In the darkness, he bore the penalty for our sins in his separation with God. He endured the wrath of God in our stead, and then with a great shout, finished. At the end of the darkness meant that everything that he had done procured our salvation. It's available. 
It's accomplished. It's yours. Now, let's go back to Psalm 22, the righteous sufferer psalm. If you take a moment to read all of Psalm 22, you realize that the righteous sufferer psalm, at the very end, it's about the righteous sufferer's vindication. Right? That God does swoop down. God himself, not Elijah, but God comes through and does deliver his righteous servant. Now the question is this, and this is something I think it would be so hard to fathom. Once Jesus has experienced the wrath of God and died on the cross, where would the vindication come from? You're already a dead man. See, this is what's so amazing is at one point you read Psalm 22 and hear Jesus quoting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you go, Jesus was separated from God. But at the same time, by virtue of quoting Psalm 22, he's also showing confidence. God, even if you left me, you're coming back around. What? (laughs) That Jesus hung on the cross confident going, I'll see you guys later. What? I'll be vindicated. Crazy thing to think about. That's why we don't know what all was going on at that time. So notice what happens. Let's draw some application. When God withdrew from Jesus, right, and Jesus finishes it, notice what Mark points out. Like, I need you to understand what happened in the earth that day. Real quick, look at verse 28, 38, 38. Notice, it's important, it shows, then... He just said, he gave his victory shout, it's done. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Write this down, number two. This shows us the, the, what Jesus did for us. Number two, the temple curtain is torn. Now you go, so why? <laughs> right? Things break apart. When Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Now there's two curtains in the temple and scholars kind of debate over which curtain is, is in uh, Mark's mind. One was over the entrance to what's just simply called the holy place in the temple. It is sometimes called the outer veil or the outer curtain. And heavenly imagery was embroidered on this outer curtain forming an appropriate parallel to the heavens tearing open at Jesus' death. So this outer veil, some see it as, all right, on this veil, there was this panoramic view of the heavens, and then notice, at Jesus' death, from top to bottom, the thing rips. It's God coming down through the heavens to what? To be near us. The other curtain that you can think about is it would indicate the inner veil, the second curtain, which was in the holy place, but it separated the holy place from the most holy place. Sometimes it's referred to as the holy of holies. You may have heard it that way. Inside of that holy of holies, this little cubed space, which gets me to another point, but I'm going to leave it. This little cubed space sat the Ark of the Covenant. This is all the way back in the Old Testament. And over the Ark, God would manifest his physical presence. And once a year, the high priest, the highest spiritual leader and representative of the people would take a blood sacrifice, enter quietly and quickly into that environment, 
expiate the people. He would spread that blood over the mercy seat, the top lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and it would forgive sin, essentially cover sin, and God would turn his wrath away against the nation of Israel for until the next year. And it had to be done over and over and over again. Now, can you imagine the significance of the fact where God goes, hey, I'm finished with my old covenant. It's done. It's fulfilled. I've received the ultimate sacrifice for sin. I don't need this any longer. And he tears the most holy place right down the center in two. What? No more sacrifices for sin. No more. This shows you, the. this is why the, the scriptures, you know, you're getting to understand, why do the apostles always teach, you'll see it over and over again in the epistles, why do they keep talking about the precious blood of Jesus? It literally fulfilled, sealed it up going, we're finished with the Old Testament. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have value for us, but the point is that, that whole sacrificial cultic system, done, fulfilled in Jesus. What an amazing thought. And this is what's so amazing. The book of Hebrews makes it clear. Jesus' sacrifice was so good because he was so pure, so holy. The Son of God, the God-man, shedding blood for sin, that he did it once and for all. Notice, Jesus don't come back once a year at Easter, right? To go, well, i got to cover everybody's sins. He did it one time. And he covered, his, his sacrifice is so great. This is why Paul says things like this, like, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. You cannot sin your way out of the grace of God. Why? Because of how powerful and precious the shed blood of Jesus is for sin. It just removes it. Remember, God looks at it and goes, I can't remember their sin anymore. Do you see that? That's this beatific vision of Jesus on the cross. And he goes, what are y'all talking about? There, and that's what we talk about. There's power in the blood of Jesus. It can cleanse us from all unrighteousness, remove the wrath of God from hanging over us. Now we get to see something even more interesting. So we're like, that's a really awesome symbol. It really is that that curtain is torn from top to bottom. No more. I'm done with that. But then we get to see the first high priest of the new covenant. And I'm just playing on a word picture here. Notice who the first person is who gets to enter into this type of intimacy with the Son of God. Look at the next verse. 39. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. (laughs) This is so good. Number three, write it down. The centurion's confession. The centurion confesses ironically, and this does not miss Mark. Remember, Mark has written this gospel to persecuted Roman Christians, the church at Rome, right? They're being persecuted for their confession that Jesus is Lord. Jesus endures the cross, suffers and dies for the sins of the world. The tavern, the, the tent or the, 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 the curtain at the, the Holy of Holies rent in two from top to bottom. And who's the first person to get to waltz in? A Roman centurion. This man's the son of God. You understand how like radical that is? Not a Jew. 
right? Not someone who's been marked out as, quote, the people of God. Someone on the outside of the covenant. And then let's go even further. This was the man that had just beat and flogged Jesus. Do you see that? Mocked Jesus. Probably he was over the crucifixion process, told Simon of Serene, carry his cross, I want to get this over with. Could have spat in Jesus' face. And after Jesus atoned for humanity's sins, and the man witnessed the suffering of Jesus, he goes, this is the Son of God. (laughs) The power of the cross drew him right up to him. And he come face to face with the truth that day. That's the amazing thing, that by Jesus' shed blood, he has called a community of people together from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Whether you've grown up in church or haven't grown up in church, you're you're close to God, far from God, it's all immaterial. All of us come to the foot of Jesus' cross. This is the Son of God. (laughs) See, the cross not only has this liberating effect to forgive us of sin, but it has a revelational impact. The point is, Jesus' death, when you carefully consider it, reveals who he really is. Think about it. The centurion had seen everything. He had doubtlessly seen other men be crucified, but something in Jesus' crucifixion became revelatory for him. The suffering of Jesus on the cross, which contradicts both Jewish messianic ideals and the Hellenistic divine man. Remember how the emperors would call themselves gods? This all came dashing down because in the cross, this is so important, the cross by an act of God becomes a window into the heart and meaning of Jesus. That's what's so revolutionary When Jesus was most forsaken by God, people saw he was the Son of God. See how that worked? When when Jesus became sin for us, we saw he was perfect and righteous. That's how he conquered. That's how he became victorious. The cross is what draws us. And this is church, can I emphasize something to you? This is why we cannot be ashamed to preach Christ crucified because people do not get the biblical image of God without the preaching of the cross. And it is foolishness. But if they won't come by the cross, there is no other way. We preach the cross. Then notice what happens. This is amazing. Notice the next verses. It says, why all of a sudden there, he talks about the women. He's setting the stage for a couple uh, days later. But notice what it says here. I just want to pick up one Greek particle. It says, verse 40, there were also women. It's the Greek word chi, and. And there were women there. Oh, and these women followed Jesus from Galilee, like from the inception of his ministry. They supported him. They gave him money. Now I want you to think about what's happening here. The only group of followers who were there at the foot of the cross with Jesus was not the 12 men, but what? The group of women who followed Jesus from the beginning of his ministry all the way to the cross. And I want you to see this. It says there were also, and there were the women. The point is this, is that Roman centurion, what group does he get put in with? The women. 
See, before, before the cross, he's a part of that crowd that's mocking him and crueling him. He identifies, this is the Son of God. And Mark goes, and there were the other women disciples there too. <laughs> Mark just transitions him. With that coming to the realization, the repentance and faith that's put in Christ, it put him as a, you're a follower of Jesus now. Marked him out. So if you're asking, so what followers were on the cross? It's the group of women, John, Jesus' best friend, and a Roman soldier. That's the early church. What an awesome, awesome thing. Martin Hengel's conclusion is verified by all evidence. It says a crucified Messiah, Son of God, or God, must have seemed a contradiction in terms to anyone, Jew, Greek, Roman, or barbarian. Asked to believe such a claim, and it will certainly have been the thought offensive and foolish. The passion and death of Jesus on the cross evoke that confession of the centurion. And it indicates that by divine revelation, the centurion had been granted the mystery of faith in Jesus as the Son of God. My sincere prayer for each and every person here is that God would grant you repentance of sin, that you would come to terms with your sin, and then would grant you faith in the crucified Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. And when you come to grips with that, when you're ready to acknowledge and believe that, confess to him, cry out to him, and the scriptures talk about over and over again, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, that's King Jesus, you will be saved. You'll be delivered from your sins, forgiven, pardoned. And the wrath of God will be removed off of you. And then an amazing thing happens. Melito of Sardis, who died around 190 AD, was recognized, also recognized this strange scandal of the Christian faith, which was the crucified Christ. He writes this, He who hung the earth in its place hangs there. He who fixed the heavens is fixed there. He who made all things fast is made fast upon the tree. The master has been insulted. God has been murdered. The king of Israel has been slain by an Israelite hand. Oh, strange murder, strange crime. The master has been treated in unseemly fashion, his body naked, and not even deemed worthy of a covering that his nakedness might not be seen. Therefore, the lights of heaven turned away, the day darkened, that it might made him who was stripped upon the cross. What is Jesus's victory? What is Jesus' victory? There is no darkness over the heads of those who trust in Christ. Judgment day does not loom over the believer. And in fact, God goes one step further and blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because we're seated in Christ. So I would put it this way. What's Jesus' victory? Is now the sun shines with the most incredible intensity on you. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. Saints, 
and sinners. I, I don't know if the gospel becomes much more clear outside of these passion narratives, the stories of Jesus' suffering. And the question that I always leave myself, because I, I think we, we're privileged from the standpoint of history to look back and we see how, we see the rest of the story, the apostolic witness and how essentially Christianity spread across the world. But if you were the Roman centurion or John or the women sitting at the cross that day, there's just, it doesn't seem like victory. It just doesn't. So why do we believe? And that's what we celebrate at Easter because this is just as much a part of the gospel. Three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating his claims and proving he really was the righteous sufferer, taking the sins upon humanity on his own shoulders and enduring the wrath of God for you. And that's when the gospel, the good news of Jesus, becomes incredibly simple. What must you do to be saved? Everything you need to do to be delivered, Jesus has already done. He's done it all. And so all we have to do is a, it's a response. Will you repent, come to terms with your sin, and believe and confess and take up Jesus as your Lord? And I know that there are kind of uh, the implications of that are startling. But that is the way of God's salvation. And it begins with a simple call out to Jesus to be saved, and he will save you. He's not dead. He's alive. He hears our thoughts and whispers. He's the Son of God. He really is. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you want to pray to King Jesus and essentially confess and believe his victory is your victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave, will you just repeat this prayer silently in your heart to him? Just say, Dear Jesus, I confess I am a sinner and deserve God's judgment. But I believe you love me. You came down for me. You shed your blood and died on the cross for all my sin. And I believe God raised you from the dead to prove it. Please forgive me. Grant me eternal life. Be my Savior in God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, my encouragement to you is Jesus talks about not being ashamed because of him. And the way we ultimately identify that we say and believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave to give us victory over sin is that we're baptized. Baptism, when we go under the water, we're showing and saying we believe in Jesus' death for our sins and when we come up out of the water, we're saying we believe in Jesus' resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life in heaven with him. And I'll call you out with gentleness and respect. There is no such thing as a capable, unbaptized believer. If you believe in Jesus, you make that confession that Centurion did, and you identify with the people of God. I'm one of his followers. Follow him in baptism. Fill out the baptism box on the back of the, the tear-off panel on the bulletin. Text BELIEVE to our text and church number. Go to our website, click the baptism tab, fill out the form. Give me a chance to talk to you about the next step of baptism. The last thing that I wanted to share, and I've never really explained this. I've, 
I use a, that prayer of salvation you know, routinely. And I, and I try to be very intentional about how I write it down and what the theology is expressed in it. And I'll never forget, I was writing it down, and I'm like, is it okay to tell people, and I mean this, to, to really personalize Jesus' love for them on the cross, to say that he loves me. And that's intentional because I wanted to read Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. This is the Apostle Paul giving his testimony about Jesus. He says this, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think you have every biblical precedent to look at Jesus' act on the cross. I don't think this is selfish or vain. And say, Jesus did that for me. Me. I'll leave you with this thought for reflection. The cross is for the Christian imagination and our soul's health. Meditate on the cross. Reflect on the cross. It's all through the cross. And he did it for you. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're in your infinite grace and mercy and wisdom that you've made a way for your Son to shine upon us. That we don't have to live um, in despair um, with your wrath hanging over our heads. And Lord, we don't have to live in vain pride and arrogance that somehow we're, we're better than we really are. That we can face the truth in Christ that we are sinners and that you love us and you've made a path uh, for forgiveness and a way back to you. Lord, I pray that if, again, if there's anyone that just still lacks understanding, your Holy Spirit would give them 
light and insight in your gospel, that it would bring them to their knees in the, in the most beautiful way that they would surrender to Jesus and become a part of this kingdom. And then, Lord, for those who confess citizenship, that we follow you as our king, Lord, may we be eternally, literally, eternally grateful for the sacrifice of your son. And as we sung early, that we would do service for Jesus, our king, not because uh, we can add to salvation. There's nothing to add. It's, it's completely done. But out of thankful gratitude, we will obey Jesus. Help us to follow you. We thank you, Jesus. We do love you. And we love you because you first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' strong name and all God's people say, amen. A couple of things just to remind you, uh, don't forget to RSVP for church uh, by Thursday of each week. You can fill out that tear-off panel on the back, check the appropriate RSVP box, drop it in the wooden drop boxes on your way out this afternoon. Um, and then also, I had one other thing, don't forget about Sunday school. Uh, the adult Sunday school class meets in the fellowship hall at 10 o'clock. You don't have to RSVP for that. Uh, if you're in your 20s or 30s, the fundamentals of the faith class with Brother David Harris is downstairs in the uh, children's ministry area. Meet there at 10 o'clock uh, on Sunday mornings. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Through the first lesson. is So the, the first lesson is probably the longest like section to go through through the fundamentals of the faith. So if you're afraid that you've missed too much, you haven't. Like, go ahead. There's, a, there's books that are available on the table in the foyer. If you're watching online and you still don't have it, drop by the church this week. Come in and pick it up uh, and take time to fill it, fill it out all right, on your own. And then come back and if you have any questions, uh, we'll catch you up in uh, the Sunday school class. Don't forget Women's Bible Study this Tuesday, 10 to 12 uh, in the Fellowship Hall. That's the morning hours, of course. And then the glory of Easter. Remember the announcements I talked about beforehand. If you want to serve, text serve to our Texan church number. If you're planning to bring your family to participate, text egg to our Texan church number. Don't forget about any of the eggs that are left over. I think they're all taken, uh, but have them back by Wednesday of this week. Wow, be a part uh, at 11 o'clock this Saturday. It would be greatly appreciated uh, and enjoy us. That's all that I got, Brother Rick. Will you come and lead us in one? I requested this song because there's no way I could sing it, uh, do that sermon without singing this song. So thanks, Brother Rick. And this song says, I heard an old, old story. That story's been told for 2,000 years. But the great thing about that story is somebody today, it's brand new to them. It's a brand new story because they gave their heart to Christ. Let's stand together as we sing Victory in Jesus, one verse. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.